0: It's Nurse Mo, and thanks for coming back to listen in to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Today, we are talking about stroke. You might also hear it called CVA, which is cerebral vascular accident, and some places are calling it brain attack because they want it to be taken as seriously in regards to the timing as heart attack. So you might hear it called one of those three things. And so this will be kind of just a basic overview of stroke. Perfect information for your Med surge one course and clinicals. So there's a couple of different types of stroke. You're going to have your embolic stroke, which is caused by a blood clot, and then you're going to have your hemorrhagic strokes. But most of them are caused by emboli, basically, because of clots. So One of the things to know about stroke is that it is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. It is also a very leading cause of disability. It's really expensive um, from a financial impact standpoint for the individual patient, for the healthcare system as a whole. But overall, the death rate due to stroke has gone down thanks to a lot more prevention and addressing comorbidities, quicker diagnosis, and timely intervention. So that is good. So what are the causes of stroke? Basically, it could be a thrombus like I was talking about, a hemorrhage, also an aneurysm, but then it's the aneurysm Bursting, basically, and causing the stroke. So it's a type of hemorrhage. Because the brain does not have an oxygen reserve, anytime there is an occlusion from an artery or a bleed out like a hemorrhage, then the brain is not going to be able to function without a steady, constant supply of oxygen You know, they kind of say three minutes is the upper end of how long your brain can go without oxygen. Think about you holding your breath. Okay, I guess some people can hold their breath for three minutes. I certainly cannot. So um, just knowing that that ischemia is what causes the cell death in the brain. Knowing the signs of stroke are key to getting that quick, fast intervention. And when I say fast, I'm talking about the acronym one of them used to recognize the signs of stroke. So it's F-A-S-T, and the F stands for facial droop, the A stands for the arms having that drift, S is for slurred speech and T is for time, meaning call 911 right now. You don't want people driving their loved ones to the hospital because they think they're having a stroke. You want to call 911 because that activates the stroke protocol, the stroke team. What happens when you call 911 with stroke symptoms is that the dispatcher or the people in the ambulance, whoever it is, reaches out to the stroke center, the hospital that can handle a patient with a stroke and lets them know they're coming in and they can get their team ready, have that CT scan available so that you get in the door to the scan right away. Driving a loved one to the hospital because they're having a stroke runs a huge risk of taking them to a place that is not equipped to deal with it. And that would be a terrible delay in care. So what are the stages of stroke? Basically, TIA is a transient ischemic attack. This is when the symptoms resolve on their own, minutes to hours. This is caused by microemboli in the brain And basically, just because the symptoms resolve on their own does not mean that everything is going to be hunky-dory for this patient. It is a strong indicator that this patient will have an actual CVA at some point. There's also RIND, reversible ischemic neurological disease. These symptoms last for about 24 to 48 hours. There's ischemia, but no necrotic brain tissue, and these patients can't expect a full recovery, so that is great. Um, stroke in evolution, 20 to 30, 20 to 35 percent of patients have symptoms, stroke symptoms, that get worse over the course of the week after the CVA, and that is why a lot of the patients, depending on what their issue is, they might be in the hospital for a couple of weeks maybe three weeks for observation. And then the completed stroke is the one that causes that permanent neurological damage. So let's talk a little bit about some of the clinical manifestations of stroke. It's really helpful to know which arteries are affected. And while there are a lot of lot going on up in the brain as far as arteries go, the most commonly involved are going to be the middle cerebral artery and the internal carotid artery, really common place to have stroke. So if you know where your patient had their stroke, you can kind of get a little preview into what their symptoms and disabilities might be. So with middle cerebral artery, common are to have contralateral paralysis, sensory loss, dysphagia and aphasia, problems with spatial perception, judgment and behavior abnormalities, and the one that I can never say, contralateral homonymous heminiopsia. Wow, I think I actually just said it. And what this is, is the field of vision in the eye is completely missing from basically a whole half of the eye. So if you go online, it's really hard to explain, but if you go online and you Google that term, you can find some pictures of what that looks like. So the th- takeaway with this is that the patient will have some neglect on the side that they're not seeing. They'll have that visual neglect, and you'll do certain nursing things to help them with that. As far as dysphagia, that's basically problems with speech, either receiving, understanding the words, or finding the words using language. And then I think the rest of it was pretty, oh, contralateral paralysis, basically stroke on the left, not able to move the right. So those are the main kind of things that you'll see with the middle cerebral artery stroke. With the internal carotid artery, you will have pretty much the same issues as what you have with the middle cerebral plus some ipsilateral visual impairment. And you could have some ipsilateral Horner's syndrome, including ptosis, meiosis, Um, maybe the side of the face that is on the same side of the stroke. They, it won't be able to sweat. Really interesting. I haven't seen that, but that is one of the things that can happen. Pretty much with any stroke, one of the things that you want to watch for is a decreased level of consciousness can definitely happen. A patient could have seizures, could have vital sign changes. So a lot could be going on with a patient who is having a stroke. Sometimes it's just as simple as the droop, the paralysis, suddenly can't speak. Um, so, doing a thorough assessment is going to come into play anytime you're dealing with a patient with stroke. Preventing stroke, a lot of it is risk factor modification. So, patients who smoke need to stop smoking. If they're overweight, they should lose weight, controlling hypertension, controlling dyslipidemias, um, diabetes, want to get that under control, things like that. Some patients will be on anticoagulants. Let's say your patient is in atrial fibrillation and that's their regular rhythm and they're chronically AFib. They're going to be on an anticoagulant because as that atria is quivering basically the way it does in AFib, the blood that's in there gets sloshed around a lot and it doesn't fully eject. So what happens is it starts to get clotty in there and patients with AFib are at really high risk for basically we say throwing a clot, meaning it has been thrown out from the ventricle into circulation and bam, stroke. So the one that they'll take is basically basically it was warfarin for a long time but now there's all these fancy new ones out there. So you may hear people talking about xarelto, pradaxa, things like that. But warfarin is still pretty darn common. Um taking aspirin, little uh daily baby aspirin or 325 aspirin can help prevent stroke. There's also um heparin's not really used that much. It's used in the hospital we'll get people started on heparin as we wait for the warfarin to become therapeutic, which typically takes about three days. So we'll start them on both at the same time. And then the heparin will come off as that warfarin has kicked in. And then there is also surgical revascularization. So let's say they've got a internal carotid occlusion and it's 80% occluded, well, that patient's at huge risk for a stroke. So they're going to go in and rotor-rooter that thing out and get that thing flowing again. So let's talk a little bit about the treatment of an evolving stroke. So your patient is coming in from ambulance, and basically the stroke team has been activated. If it's occurring in the hospital, It's going to be a rapid response call. Wherever your patient is coming from, the very first thing that you're going to do is protect their airway. That decreased level of consciousness can also bring with it an occlusion of the airway and an inability to handle their secretion. So you've got to protect that airway. Maybe they need to be emergently intubated. Maybe they just need a little extra oxygen. You'll check vital signs. Blood pressure is a big one. Hypertensive strokes are super common and really sad and really preventable. And then that patient will get to CT scan within 25 minutes of arrival to the ED or as soon as you can if it's witnessed in the hospital. You'll call a stroke alert in the hospital. They will clear the scanner so that you can get in there with your patient. Do you give or not give thrombolytics? It depends on the type of stroke. If thrombolytics are going to be given, the door-to-needle time, as we call it, is 60 minutes. And that might sound like a long time. It is a whole hour. But in a clinical setting like that, getting the patient to CT scan, getting them back, things move really fast, and 60 minutes will fly by. So we're only going to give thrombolytics if it was an ischemic stroke. So do you want your CT scan to be positive or negative? You want your CT scan to be negative. That means it is negative for a bleed. Doesn't mean they haven't had a stroke. It just means it's negative for hemorrhagic stroke. That blood from the hemorrhagic stroke is going to show up on the CT scan. And basically, this is the quick way to know if they are going to get thrombolytics or not. If the patient's actively bleeding into their brain, no thrombolytics. Other contraindications would be suspicion of other active bleeding. Um, let's say the patient comes in and they've had a stroke and their daughter says she's been having black tarry stools for the past three days. Well, that's a sign that she has a GI bleed, probably not getting thrombolytics. Um, a prior stroke in the past three months, probably not going to get, uh, thrombolytics. A head trauma or neurosurgery recently, probably last three months, contraindicated. Uncontrolled hypertension, also contraindicated. Luckily, we can give them drugs to get their blood pressure down and then give the thrombolytic. Any history of an intracranial hemorrhage, they're not going to get TPA. Um, If they have a known AVM, which is an arteriovenous malformation, no. No TPA for them. If they have a neoplasm in the brain, no TPA. No, TPN, TPN, TPA. Did I say TPN? I must be hungry. Um, Or an aneurysm. No, TPA. Um, Other contraindications, suspected or confirmed endocarditis, platelets less than 100, Current use of factor X inhibitors, there's all these things, but those are the kind of the main ones that would be contraindicated. Also, uh, blood glucose abnormalities, but those can be fixed. So the blood sugar and the blood pressure, two things that can be fixed before we give the TPA. There's a bunch of other relative contraindications, like being over 80 years old. That doesn't mean they're not going to give it, but they're going to more carefully decide if they're going to give it. Um Giving thrombolytics, one of the treatments, you're going to maintain cerebral perfusion. So you're going to do this through a whole host of things. So basically, one of the things you want to do is reduce swelling and reduce that risk of hypertensive bleeding. So we're going to keep the blood pressure below 200 systolic or below 120 diastolic if they're getting tpa however those numbers are going to be more like below 180 systolic and below 110 diastolic and you might think holy moly that blood pressure is super high well if you have a blood clot okay a clotting stroke you want the blood pressure to be higher so that the brain can be perfused okay so Especially if the brain is swelling due to injury, right? Lack of oxygen, that s- swelling is going to cause a rise in intracranial pressure. And don't worry if you haven't learned this yet, you will second semester med surge. But just a quick overview intracranial pressure is going to go up. So your cerebral perfusion pressure is going to go down. And how you overcome that is by having a higher blood pressure to work out. Um, to kind of overcome that cerebral perfusion pressure or overcome that ICP rather. So your CPP, cerebral perfusion pressure, will be adequate. Your goal cerebral perfusion pressure is 70 to 80. So I'm going to say that all again since I mucked it up a little bit. The cerebral perfusion pressure, very hard to say. I'm just going to say CPP. CPP. Equals your mean arterial pressure, which is basically your blood pressure, minus your intracranial pressure. So CPP equals MAP minus ICP. So if your ICP is really high, you got to get your MAP or your blood pressure high in order to have a CPP that is adequate. You also want to ventilate the patient very well, make sure they are getting good. numbers on their blood gas. You don't want an elevated CO2 because that will cause cerebral edema. When CO2 levels go up, the blood vessels in the brain are going to dilate. They're going to get bigger. Pressures in the brain are going to increase. And what's going to happen to perfusion? It'll decrease. So if your patient is in a really bad way, they are going to be intubated at least, you know, kind of initially. And then um, we can adjust the ventilator based on their CO2 and also do some other things to keep their ICP down. We can give mannitol to reduce swelling. This is an Osmolar agent. They typically only use it in the first 72 to 96 hours. What mannitol does, it's like super salty, basically. It's super hyperosmolar. It's going to pull fluid out of the cell in order to decrease edema. So think about your, um, you know, gradients, osmolarity gradients. It's a really serious med. It's only given in the ED or the ICU, as far as I know. You're going to keep a really close eye on serum sodiums and serum osmolalities and monitor for neuro changes with that. Steroids are given um, in subarachnoid hemorrhage cases. Sometimes you'll see you'll keep the head of the bed up a little bit to help the CSF drain well. And giving um, nemodepine to prevent vasospasm is another thing that you're going to do. So some s- schools have thought of that. It's not necessary. Others say that it does prevent vasospasm. And what nemo- nemodepine is, is a calcium channel blocker. It's used in hemorrhagic stroke, not ischemic stroke it's kind of a pain in the butt, I will be honest. It's giant, first of all. You have to give it usually every two hours. Sometimes you'll see it every four, but usually it's every two hours. Um, I don't know how people swallow these pills. They're really, really big. If the p- patient is a little altered from their stroke or has any kind of swallowing difficulty or dysphagia, they're going to have to get the liquid nimodipine, which tastes terrible. So keeping... The nemotapine going is kind of a hassle. It does drop blood pressure. So, you know, you want that perfusion, right? But the nemotapine is going to prevent vasospasm. So what do you do? You can often give uh, vasopressors. So a lot of times patients will need to be on levofed or something like that while they're on their nemotapine. And that's just, you know, an up and down titration game with that. So again, nemodepine used to prevent vasospasm and hemorrhagic stroke. So let's see. We're going to keep their body temperature as close to normal as possible. Um, For about each 1 degree Celsius increase in temp, you get really markedly more effects from the stroke. So neuro outcomes are worse in patients with fever. We often have to use external cooling measures with what we call neurotemps. So just keep that in mind that it may not work to give them Tylenol. You may be doing more like ice packs to the groins and axilla kind of thing. Um, With the hemorrhagic strokes or clots, you can have surgery, you can have decompressions, you can remove clots, you can do craniotomies where that uh, little skull flap is taken off. They used to put it in the abdomen, now they put it in the freezer, I think. That's pretty much standard practice now. And then they're going to be on seizure prevention medication, which is basically Keppra. It's the big one that we see all the time. If your patient has been given TPA, you are going to be, well, they're going to go to the ICU because they have to be monitored so closely after that TPA administration. You'll be doing lots of neurochecks on all stroke patients. On the TPA patients, you'll be doing the NIH scale, which is such a pain. And it seems laughable because it looks so easy, but it's designed beautifully to detect changes in neurostatus. And what the NIH scale does is it tests a whole bunch of things. Um, It tests dysphagia. It tests dysarthria, so the ability to speak clearly, the ability, dysphagia, you know, like knowing what things are called, understanding language. It tests things like um, motor movement, sensation. It tests ability to reason. So it's a really interesting test. It takes a while to go through it. And with any neuro exam, sometimes the results can be a little subjective. Keep in mind that the main thing with neuro exams is that you're looking for changes. So we always do a neuro exam jointly with the nurse coming on shift. So you're leaving. You have to do your neuro exam with the nurse coming on shift because it is so subjective. And you want to make sure that they see the same thing you're seeing so that when they look back at your notes and your charting, what you described as dysarthria, They know, okay, it was their voice sounding like X because we had the patient speak while we were in there, or their pupils were this size, or their facial droop looked like that. So you're all on the same page because what you're watching for are changes over time. If your patient is on TPA, you'll be doing that NIH really frequently. In the initial stages, and then it spreads out. So I think it's like every 15 minutes for an hour, and then it's maybe every 30 minutes for a bit, every hour for a bit, and then you know it's like every hour for a really long time, like 12 hours or something, and then it spaces out after that. You'd have to look, and maybe each facility has different policies. But one of the really cool things about TPA is that when it works, it works, and you get to watch your patient's NIH score improve. Now, if your patient's NIH score gets worse and they've had TPA, this could be due to a hemorrhagic conversion. So that TPA is going to make them bleedy, right? So you can have a hemorrhagic stroke after TPA administration, and that is going to be the one hugest thing that you're going to watch for when your patient has had TPA. They're going to have different blood pressure parameters than your patient who has a a, clot and no TPA or your patient who has had neurointervention. So with your patient with TPA, you're going to keep their blood pressure more normalized and they may need to be on something like a nicardipine drip to keep it where it needs to be. So that is the short version of TPA administration and keeping the swelling down in a patient with um, cerebral edema. And then I talked a little bit about nemodepine and vasospasm. Patients with stroke are going to need a lot of rehab. And this is, so if you're working in the ICU, you're going to be working more with that cerebral edema part of it, the vasospasm part of it, the watching for evolving stroke part of it, that conversion to a bleed part of it, and the airway protection component. If you're working on the floor or in a rehab unit, Strokes can still get worse over time. They can have more stroke, uh, things like that. So you're always going to be watching. You're always going to be doing your neuro assessments. But you're going to be adding in a lot more of that rehab component. So the patient will have to get speech therapy to do a swallow evaluation on anyone with um, any kind of weakness in the pharyngeal muscles, if they have difficulty speaking, uh, the tongue weak the chewing muscles weak, the swallowing muscles, any of that, they're going to get a speech therapist to come in and do a a thorough swallow evaluation. And what they watch for is the patient's, well, first of all, their ability to follow instructions, their ability to chew, maybe they can't chew effectively, so they'll have to be on pureed diet, which is the worst. I had a patient who was on a pureed diet and... She was, you know, she, a little, she had a little dementia. She was really cute though. And she wanted tacos and hot dogs and all these things. And I'm like, no, you can't have that, but I'll try to get you something savory. So I sent a note to Dietarian and and requested some uh, meat dish off her puree diet. And I'm telling you what they sent up look, looked egg exactly like cat food. She didn't eat it. Big surprise. But anyway, the patient may need to be on a puree diet, maybe diced, ground diet, something like that, chopped, um, or maybe they're fine. It'll check their ability to swallow um, solids and liquids. They might be able to swallow plain liquids, which is called um, thin, or they may need liquids thickened. And there's hec- hector honey thick, and nectar thick. And that's two um, consistencies. One is a little thicker than the other, I think. I'm not sure which one is actually thicker now that I'm thinking about it. But you will add this thickening agent to their water, to their... Juice to whatever they're drinking, and it's kind of weird, but it's safe, and they're just going to have to deal with it. And it'll look for they'll look for if they're pocketing food, like if they can't really feel one side of their mouth, they may leave food over there in their cheek. So you have to know that when you're feeding them to check for pocketing and and give that instruction for them to clear their cheek. So safe eating is really important with stroke victims. You want to make sure that they don't develop pressure ulcers. If they're paralyzed on one side, their mobility is drastically decreased. You're going to be doing a lot of mobilization with these patients, um, turning them side to side, getting them to the chair as soon as you can, and increasing their activity as as able. They will have physical therapy orders on board and be seen by physical therapy, but you as the nurse are going to be implementing those physical therapy orders. So don't wait for PT to come by to get your patient in a chair. If you know that they've been working with PT and getting up to the chair, you can read the PT note and see what they're doing to help. And you can totally do that yourself, maybe with a friend, but you can totally do that. You want to, um, Make sure that contractures don't develop. If they're severely disabled mobility-wise, you're going to be doing range of motion. You are going to be um, positioning their arms, their limbs in positions of comfort, things like that. They may need bowel and bladder function support depending on their level of disability. May need a lot of communication support. So um, if they have... You know, word-finding problems, you might hear them speak in what I call word salad, which is just a jumble of words that don't make sense. I had a patient who had really bad word salad. And as they were saying the words, they knew they weren't the right words, but they're the words that came out. So they were thinking perfectly clearly, absolutely perfectly clearly, following all instructions, all of that. But when they would speak, what came out was like 75% coherent and then 25% word salad. And it made it really hard for this patient to communicate their needs. And it was so obvious that they were getting frustrated. And so you as the nurse are going to have to be very patient with patients like this. Don't show your frustration because they're already frustrated. So, being really patient with them, maybe utilizing a picture board. They might be able to point to a picture more easily or point to a word. Maybe they can still recognize uh, the written language. So maybe if you write down some common phrases, they can point to some what they need or what they want. Uh, communication support is really, really important. Um, they may not be able to take in language and understand what you're saying. And in that case... Um, you can pantomime what you're trying to get across. You could try using pictures, things like that. Um, if their visual field is impaired, we talked about that a little bit earlier. So let's say they've got a a field cut and they're not seeing anything on the right side of their visual field. If you place their, um, water pitcher on the right side, they're probably not going to even know it's there. So you want to put things within the visual field that is viewable. You want to approach them from that side as well and try to do as much of your interaction with them from their good visual field side. Um, Some patients will have complete neglect of a whole part of their body. So they may have a whole left side neglect of their body, not even feel like it's there or belongs to them. So don't put items that they're going to want to use on that neglected side. Put everything on their good side. Um, set them up for success. And you also monitor for depression, which is super common um, in stroke because the the disabilities can be enormous and the treatment slash rehab phase is so long and requires so much hard work that it, that patients can get down. Something that I've seen that really helps is we have a really awesome stroke support group at our hospital, and the stroke survivors have like a club. They're all volunteers, and they come to the hospital, and they go around, and they talk with the patients that have had a stroke that are still kind of in their acute phase and that just scary period of their lives where they're adjusting to this and they see that these people are, are back to functioning and, and doing well. And so it really helps for that peer to peer support. So that is just a quick little overview of stroke. I'm sure I didn't cover everything, but it's a little overview, kind of a supplement to your stroke lecture. I hope that it is helpful and I wanted to, I get all kinds of, of emails from you guys. So I wanted to start sharing those on the podcast because I think people write in with things that many of you might be dealing with. So... I have got a note from Carly a while back, and she says, Hey, Nurse Mo, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all you contribute to the nursing community. I'm getting my RN at such and such school and read your book the summer before school started, and it greatly decreased my anxiety. Now that I'm in school, myself and my classmates use your notes and your guidance to help us get through your thoughtfulness and sharing your insights work, and tips are extremely appreciated. My boyfriend's sister just got accepted into nursing school. Yay! And she's so nervous, so of course I brought her straight to your website and told her how much you helped me get organized, figure out what was important, understand what was going to happen, and manage my anxiety about it all. Thank you. Thank you. You rock. So Carly, thank you for that nice note. I'm pretty sure I emailed you back personally because that note, really made my day. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about the anxiety of starting nursing school and not knowing what's going to happen. Here's what I had to say about that. To get into nursing school, you guys had to go through so much, right? You had to take some pretty tough classes and get really good grades in those classes. And so you're, you're, going to be fine. Okay. You've got this. You've got the intelligence, you know, the study smarts to do this. The hardest thing about nursing school is the amount of information that is covered and the schedule. You're busy all the time. So in order to learn that vast amount of information, which you can totally learn, you are absolutely smart enough to learn every single thing in your nursing program. But fitting it all in in your schedule with the 24 hours in a day is the hard part. So, being organized, being efficient with your time, finding a study method that works, finding a way to review for exams that works, not wasting time is the biggest, best way that I can help you guys. So that was basically why I started this website in the first place. So I graduated a crispy burnt critter with nothing left. I didn't even have fun at my graduation party. I was so tired. I kind of was a little bit of a a, a bonkers student and I went a little perfectionist on myself, but I had, I was so driven, so driven. And what got me through was being super organized and having my routines and my study habits down pat and having faith in the study methods that I had chosen. So when I started this website, I thought, wow, you know, I could really help other people. Maybe they're still going to be really busy in nursing school, but maybe they won't lose their whole life to it the way I did. So you know, there's tons of resources. If you haven't been to the website and you just found this podcast, go to straightanursingstudent.com. There's a ton of stuff there. Uh, I write blog posts all the time on a variety of topics of interest to student nurses and new nurses. If you look in the tag section on the right-hand sidebar, you can click things like I want to read posts about clinicals or I want to read about... um advanced med surge or the basics or respiratory or whatever. So you can find things that way. There's also a search function that's really great it's at the very bottom on the right. So search in a search term and chances are you're going to find something about it on there. If not, let me know and I'll write about it or do a podcast about it. There's a book that I wrote called Nursing School Thrive Guide that has helped tons of students. So you can check that out. That book goes into a lot more detail about the nitty gritty of nursing school and study methods and what to expect out of clinical and how to decode nursing diagnoses and NCLEX questions and and just kind of those things that make students really nervous. There's also notes. The notes I used in nursing school are on that website. So go and get those. There's uh, premium notes as well, premium study guides. Some of the topics I didn't have up in the free section because for some reason I didn't type up those notes when I was in school. So what I've done is create a study guide now. So if you don't see it in the free section, look in the premium section. There's still only 99 cents, guys. Um, That's an introductory price right now, and it is August 2017. That might change in the future, but I wanted to get them out to you as an introductory, super affordable, low price of 99 cents. Go get those. Those are awesome. Right now, I've got them up for Surge one There's Cardiovascular, which is a free one, so you can check it out. Make sure it's worth your while. Guarantee you'll fall in love with it. Neuro, which... Doesn't cover stroke. It covers more like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, MS, things like that. Really informative. Really good. There will be a stroke one up eventually. There's respiratory, GI. There's diabetes is about to go up. I think there might be one more core one for Med MedSurg 1. And once I get all the Med MedSurg 1s up, then we're going to do Med MedSurg 2. Then we'll do PEDS and OB and mental health and all of that. So eventually, they'll all be there. It's going to take a while. But... Go there, check the notes out. Um, Super helpful. And all of those things can help decrease your anxiety like it did for Carly. So I hope that was super helpful. I hope that was an interesting intro to stroke. It's a really complex topic. We could talk uh, a lot. We could talk for a whole podcast about cerebral edema. But it was just an overview, give you a little bird's eye look at it and... If you are interested in a specific topic, please just go to the website and go to the about contact area over there on the right top and send me a quick note and I will definitely put that into consideration. And if you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review. I love it. It helps us rank higher so that other students can find the podcast. So, Go to straightanursingstudent.com and you will just be all relaxed about nursing school. Okay? All right. Have a great day, guys. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.